pray. Well, please turn with me to John 12. John 12. And uh, I'm going to ask you to stand with me and as we read the scripture one more time. And this is an immensely important chapter, and it's really hard to, to discern how much context for you to give because there's so much going on in this passage. So I'm, I'm going to read from verse 12 through 26, but what we're focusing on today is verses 23 through 26, and in particular, Jesus Christ teaching these men about His glory, His glorification. Verse 12, this is the Word of God given to us today. The next day, the crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Him, crying, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, quoting from Zechariah, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your King is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about Him and that these things had been done to Him. The crowd that had been with Him when He called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised Him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet Him was that they had heard that He had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that we are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after Him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. And they asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. I'm going to read one verse past. Now is my soul troubled, and shall I say, Father, save me from this hour. But for this very purpose, I have come to this hour. Please be seated. Please be seated. Pray with me today. Lord, we we come before you. I come before you dealing with such a marvelous text that is so... uh, It's high. It's, um, It's something I can't conceive, wrap my mind around, Lord. And I pray today that we would see something of the glory and the honor that's been done here. That in time and space history, not in fiction, not in some fictional book... But in reality, 2,000 some years ago, Jesus Christ was glorified forever. And I pray that you would help us to worship you because of it. In his name we pray. Amen. So, as we think about this text, I think one of the terms that we come across that, especially if we're not familiar with biblical terminology, can really just seem like a a poetic word or something that doesn't have much meaning is the word that we have here, glory. Glory, right? And how we define that is really kind of difficult. It's kind of like the word holiness in the Scripture. Glory can be defined as weight, as significance, as majesty, as honor, or being exalted. Now, 
In our text here today, we're talking about the glorification, that is, the process of putting Christ into glory today. And that is His exalted state forevermore. And as we think about this, every human being I want us to realize today believes in their heart that human beings are to be glorified one day. We believe, all of us, regardless of our religious background, regardless of our political affiliations, that there's something wrong with humanity, something wrong with culture, and that it needs to be better. Something has screwed us up, and it needs to be made right again. And we believe in our deepest heart that that is glory. Humanity in an exalted state. Now, this is stating nothing more than what the Westminster Divine stated in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? But to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That, biblically speaking, is the state of glory. God, the Eternal Father, created us. And we were made to be with Him forever, perfectly worshiping and enjoying Him for all eternity. And Jesus Christ, in this text, He explains something to us. He explains that the glorification of Himself and His bride, that is the church, comes through His death and resurrection. That's the main point of our passage here today. And John desires in writing this for all of us to marvel at Christ's glorification. Not to read it as some dead doctrine, something we read about every every Easter at least, and go on from there. We're to marvel at it. We're to trust in Christ's death and resurrection. And also, we're to respond appropriately in how we live our Christian lives. Now, we're going to have two simple points if you're trying to keep it straight in your head. And also on the back, I have a little outline of the sermon. If you want to follow along with that, that's fine. We're going to see the glorification of Jesus Christ. And then secondly, the glorification of the bride of Christ. Now, As we consider in those first one and a half verses, 23 through 24a, the glorification of Jesus Christ, we first need to understand the context of Jesus' teaching if we're going to have this passage be read how the author wants us to read this passage. Now, in general, when we look at chapter 12 in Matthew, we're looking at a very significant chapter in the book because it's a transition chapter. It's transitioning between two acts of Christ's work. (coughs) Theologians have called it the active work of Christ and the passive work of Christ. But what they're really pointing at is the fact that for the first 33 years of Jesus' life, Jesus devoted His life to obeying the Father and in the last three, to ministering and preaching the good news of the Gospel to people. In chapter 12, we have a transition from that to His death burial, and resurrection. That is, he passively received the wrath of men being crucified, oppressed, and being raised by God the Father from the grave. Now, this transition from miracles to ministry, I want us to notice how close the Apostle John writes this history. And what I mean by that, how little time takes place from chapter 12 to the end of the book. Notice in verse 1, The context that we have here is that it's six days before the Passover. 
Six days before the Passover. Only a few days away from Jesus Christ dying on a tree. And I need not remind you the horror of that. Being nailed to a tree. Being whipped by Roman soldiers. This is a few days away and Jesus Christ knows it. That's in the context. But the particular context that we're in is not just a transition to Jesus Christ's passion, but growing fame of Jesus Christ. Did you notice that as we read these verses today? That Jesus Christ is having an exalted fame among almost all groups of people. Uh, Look down with me. Notice verse 11. It tells us, because on account of Him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. This is what characterized Jesus at this time. Six days before He died, many Jews were believing on Him. But if we continue, look, in verses 12 through 15, the large crowds gathering together, right? We've seen this word, oklos, crowds, in Matthew. These are mostly unbelieving crowds, but Jesus' fame has come to such a proportion that on the Passover day, when every Jew from around the world would come to Jerusalem, they're cutting down palm branches. And they're saying, Hosanna, quoting from the Psalms, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now, we have to realize what they're saying there. They're not just saying we really like this guy because he does miracles. He's not just a good preacher. This is the Messiah that we have been waiting for since the beginning of Moses' writings, 1,500 years prior. Growing fame of Jesus Christ, such that in verse 19, the Pharisees said to one another, you see that we're gaining nothing. Look, the whole world is going after him. His enemies that have plotted to put him to death, see his fame to such an extent that now they're saying, it's no good. We might as well hang it up. But I think we see part of the growing fame of Jesus in verse 20 as well. Notice what we see there. Among those who went up to the feast to worship were some Greeks. Now, these aren't Hellenists probably, that is Greek-speaking Jews, These are probably those who have not come to even trust in Yahweh yet, but they've heard of Jesus Christ. They've heard of what He's done, and they're starting to believe in Him. These Greeks, these outside the covenant community, are even coming to Jesus Christ. And we should see in chapter 12 a building intensity, the fame of Christ. And it's in that context that Jesus Christ teaches In verses 23 through 26. And I want us to notice exactly what it says. As we have in our mind, Jesus' fame building, skyrocketing. It says, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, as we read through that text, we might not see a whole lot of significance in it, but I want us to see today that this is the pinnacle of all of human history. Now, today, we look back on the resurrection of Christ as the greatest event that's ever taken place on this earth, and before Jesus Christ, all of history looked forward to this particular day. Now, The pinnacle of all human history. And I I want to press that into our minds today. Every war that ever took place before this event. 
Every rainstorm, every sin, and every act of righteousness was driving humanity to one unalterable goal that God has put in His calendar in heaven that Christ would come down to earth and ultimately be raised up to sit with Him again in heaven. Now, we see this in the New Testament. The Gospels, we know, are full of talking about Christ and His resurrection. And (coughs) we should see that Jesus, although He was sent by the Father, it is always in the mind of Christ, always in the mind of the Father, that Jesus is going to return to heaven. That is, to return to the glory that He had prior. Turn with me one chapter later to John chapter 13. John chapter 13 The night before he was betrayed, and again, Jesus knowing this is the night before he was going to be killed, murdered. Notice what it says in verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God, rose from supper. Jesus knew in his mind this hour was coming, and he is going to go back to his Father. But maybe more clearly... And certainly more, more clear to my sinful mind is in John chapter 17, in verse 4. Again, Christ, praying before he's crucified, praying to the Father, says, I glorified you on earth. I exalted the Father, exalted you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is a constant theme, and we could turn to many passages, that Jesus Christ knew that in his death he would ultimately be glorified. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. But it's more than just a New Testament theme. I hope that we will see today that Jesus' glorification... Being raised up is one of the strongest themes of all the Old Testament. And there's so many places to go that these are going to be insufficient, but I hope that two or three witnesses gathered together would help us today. Um, Notice Genesis chapter 49. If you'll turn there with me. Turn there with me. I just want us to see these with our eyes. That the New Testament didn't come along and there is something new going on, always in the mind of God, was the glorification of Christ. In Genesis 49, we have Jacob, before his death, blessing all 12 of his sons and giving a a prophecy of the things that are going to take place with his sons afterward. And we notice in verse 10 that he starts to talk of Judah. Now Judah is the tribe of Christ. The scepter, that is the ruling staff, and we'll see that later. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And again, what does that mean? The obedience of the peoples. We're talking about a ruler of the world here. All the nations would obey this one coming from Judah. Um, Several hundred years later, we see in Psalm chapter 2, the glorification of Christ mentioned by David through the Holy Spirit. Psalm chapter 2. (coughs) 
David writes this, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. That's talking about the resurrection of the dead rather than his physical birth, by the way. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Notice that. The glory of Christ, in part, is Him ruling over all things. He's going to be exalted to the most exalted place anywhere in this world, ruling over all people. Now, I think the most clear, though, is in the prophets in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. And why this is so important for us today in talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ is this is what Christ is alluding to when He says in John chapter 12... The hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. He's bringing up this text to our minds. In Daniel chapter 7, notice what Daniel writes. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So we see just from these few references that throughout the Scripture there is a strong theme that when the Messiah finally does come, he will be finally and forever glorified with the Father. And Jesus says, this hour has come. And this isn't just some cleverly put together Bible study, I hope you know. Because the same thing is said in Luke 24, where Christ, risen from the dead, says to His disciples, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Notice this language. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory. You haven't believed the prophets if you didn't know that it was necessary for Jesus to suffer death and enter into the Father's glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them all the Scriptures of the things concerning Himself. All of creation, what I want you to see today, has waited for this moment For Jesus to be glorified, the pinnacle of all of human history. And Jesus says, now is the hour. Now is the hour. This is the time of Jesus' glorification that we should pay attention here to. But it's not only the time of His glorification that is shocking to us today. It is also the means by which He is glorified that should cause us to awe and wonder at Him. The means of His glorification is death and resurrection, right? Now, the reason I spent so much time trying to build a context here, it reminds me a little bit of political things, and it's always easy to think of World War II in my mind. When Hitler began to rise to power in the late 1920s in Germany, he began to increase in popularity. The government at the time started slowly to achieve more seats, the Nazi party and the government. And eventually Hitler, in his own twisted mind, was glorified through that, through an earthly military conquest. And that might be 
what we're expecting when we read this text for the first time. That was certainly the Jewish expectation at the time. Jesus' fame is gaining. The Greeks are even coming to him. What would he do? We would expect perhaps an earthly king. He's going to be set on his throne. He's going to defeat the Romans finally and forever. And we will be a free Jewish nation once again. But the exact opposite is what Jesus Christ tells these people. And I think that that's why this context is given in this chapter. Notice with me in verse 24a what Christ says to these Greeks. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. What a contrast between glory and death. A grain of wheat, something simple, something despised, something we take no notice of. Falling into the ground and dying. That's how Jesus describes the means of his glorification. Instead of being a king by earthly conquest and popularity, the exact opposite takes place. Jesus has the crowds turn on him to such a degree where he is nailed to a tree like a common criminal. A despised criminal. A cursed man in the Jewish mind. And this agricultural image that Jesus Christ uses is so helpful for us here. He's like a grain of wheat falling into the ground and dying. But that death is the means of his exaltation. Um, It's what the theologians like to call the humiliation and the exaltation of Jesus Christ. That is the pattern of Christ's ministry is that he went as low as any human being could ever go and he has been raised up to the highest height that any human being could ever be raised to. Now, this is seen clearly in Philippians 2 if you'll turn there. (coughs) Philippians chapter 2. I want us to notice this path of humiliation and exaltation in our Savior's glorification. Um, A lot of Asians there, but... um, Philippians 2. Notice in verse 4, "...let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others." And then he tells us why. "...have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself." taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So in the humiliation of Christ, you notice how he's been humiliated. He was in the form of God. He had all the worship of God and of the angels. And he emptied himself of all of that divine prerogative. And he became a man. He added to himself a human nature. This is part of the humiliation of Christ. But doesn't it continue so much further than there? He did not live like a king on this earth. Rather, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is God or is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, We see here that Jesus Christ, the means of his glorification is the opposite of what we might think. It is death. 
And the lowest death that we can imagine. Death on a cross. But we might ask, why did Christ's path to glory, why did it have to go through the means of death? Because Christ did not die for Himself. His glory wasn't a selfish glory. Although it would have been right for Jesus to be glorified only on His own account. But Jesus died by taking the curse that we deserve to pay upon His own shoulders. This is part of Christ's glory in and of itself. Do you know that? That it's not just His resurrection, but His death on the cross is the hidden glory that Christ had. That in the eyes of God the Father and in the eyes of Christ Himself, He was glorified even on that tree to speak loosely at least. We all deserve to be humbled, humiliated to the ultimate degree because we've sinned against the one who gives us life. Right? That the God who lets you breathe, who lets you think, you use that same breath and that same mind to go against Him. To do things you know you ought not to do. And the Bible tells us that deserves being cut off from the source of all life. And Christ, when He was on that tree experienced that for everybody that would believe in Him. He took our punishment. But we, when we looked at Christ taking our punishment, we interpreted that the opposite way. We didn't see it as the glory of God. We saw it as a just punishment. Isaiah 53 and verse 4 says this. Isaiah 53, prophesying about Christ, says, Surely... He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet what? We esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. When He was on that tree, He was carrying my sin. But when I looked at it in my sinful state, I said, well, He's cursed by God. That's why that's happening to Him. Verse 5, but in reality, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Jesus Christ suffered the affliction of man. And we put all sorts of false charges against our Savior when he was on that tree. But his resurrection, he was vindicated, right? We put him under the false court of human justice. And Christ raising him from the dead showed that none of those charges could stand. And that He paid for all of our sins fully and finally. He is justified. And so are we. And that's where we transition into the second part of this text. The glorification not just of Christ, but the glorification of the Bride of Christ. The glorification of the Bride of Christ. Notice in 24b what is said here. We've already read it. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. It remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, it is glorious to see that Jesus Christ as a man, as an individual, was vindicated of the false charges at His resurrection, right? If we look at any kind of court hearing where somebody's charged of something and they're not guilty of it, we rejoice in that. How many stories have we read that with modern DNA evidence, we find people in the 80s and the 90s who are put in prison for long periods of time, they're vindicated because DNA evidence has shown that they weren't the one who perpetrated that. 
It's good for us to rejoice that Jesus has been vindicated. But the wonderful thing about this text is that when Jesus falls into the earth and dies, He doesn't remain alone. This stalk that grows out of the ground, so to speak, it bears the fruit of all of God's people on it. He died that He wouldn't be alone, but that He would die for His people's sin and bring them with Him to glory. And I know we talk so much about the union that believers have with Jesus Christ, but I want you to see that today. When Jesus died on that cross... Your sins were placed on Him to the point where you can say, if you believe in Christ, I have been crucified with Christ. And alternatively, or to add to that, we are so united to Christ through faith in Him that when He raised from the dead, we were with Him. He has seated with us with Him in heavenly places in Christ. He has brought us into glory. In Romans 3.23, that classic evangelistic text, we read, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. At our introduction, we talked about that. We know deep in our hearts and our consciences, we were made for glory. We were made for something better. But we fall short of that because of our sin and our rebellion. But Christ has solved that for us. He has entered into glory and He's brought us with Him into glory. Now, This wonderful truth doesn't just remain in the intellectual sphere for the Christian, but because, again, we are united with Christ, it has effects in this life and the one to come. The already and the not yet. If we think about already, how does Christ's resurrection, His glorification affect us? Already in this life, it gives us new life. That is, where we were once dead to sin... Or alive to sin, dead to God. We were doing everything for our own pleasure. Now, if we believe in Christ, Romans 6.4 says, we were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised by the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We are so organically connected to our Savior that His resurrection affects how we live now. No longer does sin have dominion over us. No longer are we careless about what God's Word says. Now, we walk in newness of life. But more than that, it promises something future. It promises glory yet to come. It guarantees our future resurrection. Now, that's why Christ is often talked about as the first fruits, the new creation. Because when we look to Christ and His resurrection, not only do we rejoice at His vindication, not only do we know that through that we have new life, we know that we will have perfect, forever, eternal resurrection life in the time to come. Um, I'd ask you to turn to 1 Corinthians with me. (coughs) 1 Corinthians 15. To see this. And again, as you're turning there, what I want us to see is that the resurrection of Christ, it affects every aspect of our faith, and it's something that should be put before our minds consistently and constantly, and not just on Easter Sunday. Notice what's said in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Notice this language. The first fruits of them who have fallen asleep. 
For as by a man came death, by a man has also come resurrection from the dead. For in Adam all die. So in Christ, those that believe in Christ, all shall be made alive. Notice verse 23, each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. If you've been around farming ever, um, you know that typically there's the first fruits of the harvest that come out. And the Hebrews, they were even directed and commanded by God to take those first fruits and give them to God, trusting that God would bring the later fruits of the harvest. And that's what Jesus Christ is to us. We look at his resurrection, we not only know that he gives us life, but that he will raise us from the dead on that final day. (coughs) And so, as we think about the goal of Christ's glorification, the end goal was Jesus Christ's death and resurrection was that he would unite and purchase a people to be with him forever. Hebrews 2 says this in verse 9, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Verse 10 is so important. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus was crowned with glory and honor, but it was to bring many sons to glory with him. And so, the next question that our text asks that we have to answer is how do we respond to this? Notice, in verses 25-26 through 26 of John 12, Jesus continues. After he says this, it almost seems not to fit in my, our mind, but I think it certainly does. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Oh, this corrects so many false things in our American evangelical thinking, doesn't it? That if I come to Christ, everything's going to be okay. All the rough patches are going to be smoothed out. And I'm actually, I think in my mind, going to live the path to glory all the days of my life. Jesus has died for me. I don't need to deal with any of that. I'm just going to live a happy-go-lucky, smiley Christian life every day. This text tells us that we are not to expect that. It's as if Jesus is saying, I am going to die and make no mistake about that, but don't deceive yourself. If you name me as your Savior, you are going to follow the same pattern of life. You're going to follow the same pattern of life. Your life is going to be one of taking up your cross daily and following after Him. I don't have this in my notes, but a text that has been sticking in my mind for the last week or so is in Psalm 73. You don't have to turn there, unless you'd like. In Psalm 73, the psalmist is lamenting the prosperity of the wicked. And he describes the Christian experience. And he says this, All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. That's not true, but verse 14 is his common experience. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Do you feel like that as a Christian? 
Do you feel like you end the day and you're like, oh, I'm such a mess. I fall so short of what God calls me to do. I've just been stricken every day. That is the Christian experience. We live looking forward to that glory where sin will no longer be in our hearts. But while we live here, we live a life of hating this life and looking forward to the next one. We look forward to the next one. Now, we ought not to take this text as meaning that if you hate your life sufficiently enough, that's how you become a Christian. Or if you truly lay down your life enough, then you will become a Christian. Nothing is required of you to to have Christ than to receive Him by faith and to trust in all that He has ever done for you. But if you do that, this text is given, again, that we wouldn't be deceived. The Christian life is a hard life. Once we are united to Him, our life will of necessity take on the same pattern of life that Jesus' life took on. Even in 1 Corinthians 15, if you have it in your mind, Paul says, I die daily. Right? This is the Christian life. The path to our glorification is through the hidden glory that Jesus displayed as well. To the world that looks foolish. Why do we come to church every Sunday and just talk about our sins? Why do we meet in ladies' group? I don't meet in ladies' group. You know what I mean. And confess our sins to one another. Why do we spend so much time talking about how miserable we are and how good our Savior is? Because we trust that one day He's going to raise us up. Do you realize the faith that Jesus Christ had in this moment? Five days, four days, something like that, before His crucifixion to believe the Father's going to raise me up. I'm going to go through the valley of the shadow of death, but I'm going to come out on the other side because the Father will Raise me up. That should be the attitude that we have as Christians because Christ has done it. If we believe in Him, we can walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We can walk through the hardest of times. We can face death itself knowing that Christ will raise us up to a glory beyond our comprehension. Lastly today, I would just remind us all as Christians here today, what it means to follow Christ is to serve Christ and to follow Christ. That's what our text says. We follow him and all that he says and all that he does. And that is, again, a life of dying to ourselves, of dying for our brothers and sisters and living to God. As we turn our mind to the Lord's table today, and we'll have Brother Joey come up here in a second, I'm just reminded (coughs) that we have, and no man has ever seen the crucified Lord, But we have put before us in the Lord's Supper a picture of His physical body, His earthly body before His glorification being broken and His blood shed for us. And we put our hope in that. That He was made like us in every way. He was human, fully human, that He could take a human's sins and pay pay for them. But as we take this bread, we must remember that Christ has a glorified body in heaven now, no longer broken, no, mo- no longer under the, uh, the effects of sin. And one day we will be like that as well. We will be like that as well. And br- Brother Joey, would you come forward?